So, um, yes, it is an absolute honor to be with you here today, and I do want to thank Russell. Many thanks to Russell for the invitation to talk to you a bit about the liturgical season of Advent. That's why Russell asked me here today. Um, and um, I, I'm not only the rector of All Saints Anglican Church, but I'm also the archdeacon for liturgy in our diocese. So we, um, our church is kind of grouped together under one kind of head pastor, the bishop, and that's a diocese. And so our bishop uh, made me the archdeacon, that is the officer for liturgy. And um, that's one of the reasons why I end up talking about these things a lot. That's kind of within my wheelhouse. Now, I have known, as Russell said, I, I've, I've known Russell and Randy and, uh, and Ronnie and many other folks from Beth Simca for many, many years. I spent most of my teens and 20s at Beth Simca uh, before returning to my roots about 15 years ago. Um, and, and if I recall correctly, um, some of my first, actually my absolute first experiences both leading worship and preaching were at Beth Simca. So I owe a lot to this congregation. Um, and just as I've been invited here for Shabbat, I would like to extend the invitation to you all to join us at All Saints for our Christmas Eve service at 7 p.m. if you'd like. Um, we're over kind of West and Blanco area. And this is probably our biggest service of the year. It's my absolute favorite. Um, but we will also be having a simpler service tomorrow morning for Christmas Day at 10 a.m., and my assistant, uh, the Reverend John Mack, will be officiating preaching at that service. I'll be there, but I'm just going to be not, not doing much. So the question is then, why should we speak about Advent at a Messianic Jewish Shabbat service of all things? Well, of all the seasons of the traditional church year, Advent is the one that has it's the most obvious connections to the church's Jewish roots. I've got a friend who is a currently a seminarian um, studying for the Anglican ministry, and he grew up um, Jewish, not, not Messianic Jewish, straight up Orthodox Jewish, and he always says he wishes Advent was longer because it just, it just goes, it goes right home to him. Matter of fact, he wrote a really neat scholarly article um, that came out earlier this week on the connections between uh, Christmas and some of the very, or very early Christian Christmas pers uh, practices, some of which you don't really see anymore, and Hanukkah. Um, the, uh, th those of y'all that have gone with Russell to Israel, um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was dedicated around the same time the temple was dedicated in Maccabees for a reason. <laughs> Um, they very much saw it as a fulfillment. But that's kind of be besides the point. Um, if you're like I was for much of my life, you may have assumed that Advent is just another name for the Christmas season, but this is not quite correct. Advent, of course, I'm sorry, Christmas, of course, celebrates the birth of the Messiah, the incarnation of God the Son, the coming of the Word made flesh. And as we're reminded in the well-known Christmas carol, the season traditionally lasts for 12 days. And despite what TV says, it's 12 days starting on Christmas, not 12 days before Christmas. Amen. <laughs> um, and it begins sundown December 24th. I'm sure you here will know why we start at sundown. Um, and it ends on January 6th, which is the Feast of the Epiphany. So this is indeed one of the two most important seasons in the celebration of the traditional church year. Advent, however, is the roughly four-week period prior to Christmas when we enter into the deep expectation of the Messiah's coming. We join with Israel in the ancient longing for God to fulfill his promises. 
for the longing for God to keep his covenant, the longing for God to redeem his people. As we join with Israel in anticipation of the Messiah's first coming, then we also, this is the other end of things, we remember that he promised to come again. So again, we enter into expectation and anticipation as we look forward to the Messiah's second coming. So this gives Advent something of a kind of quasi-penitential, but also very prophetic feel that is best encapsulated by that ninth century hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I did not expect you guys were going to be singing that today. Um, so we're, we're going to sing it again. <laughs> uh, feel, feel free to join me in the refrain. Um, and some of the words are a little bit different in the translation that, that, uh, that we have in our hymnal. But uh, the first one is the one that everybody knows. So, <clears throat> And we have a full seven verses in, in our hymnal that, that are all very important. O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. That mourns in lonely exile here Until the Son of God appear Rejoice, rejoice Emmanuel shall come to thee Thee, O Israel O come, thou wisdom from on high, who orderest all things mightily. To us the path of knowledge show, and teach us in her ways to go. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times didst give the law, in cloud and majesty and awe, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou rod of Jesse's stem, from every foe deliver them, that trust thy mighty power to save and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high, and close the path to misery. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. 
O come thou day spring from on high, and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadow put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, desire of nations, bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad division cease, and be thyself our King of peace. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Being from the ninth century, there's a lot of variations, right? <laughs> um, did you notice, though, all of the allusions here to the Old Testament, allusions to the Tanakh, that are found throughout this ancient hymn. The first verse calls, of course, for Emmanuel, an echo of Isaiah, and speaks of him ransoming Israel, which is an echo, of course, of the Exodus. The second verse speaks of the Messiah is the wisdom from on high, as we see in Proverbs and other Hebrew wisdom literature. The third verse speaks of giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. The fourth and fifth verses allude to even more of Isaiah's messianic prophecies. And in fact, since the Middle Ages, it has been traditional to read through Isaiah as part of our daily readings during Advent because that book is so rich with um, expectation and messianic prophecy. The final verse alludes to Haggai's prophecies. Throughout the hymn, we hear this deep longing of Israel, but we also answer the longing. In every verse, Israel is assured that Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, will come to Israel. Now, you may have noticed, if you were keeping count, that I left out verse 6. Um, that's because the sixth verse is the only verse whose allusions are primarily from the New Testament. Yet, it nevertheless is a messianic prophecy. How do you get a prophecy in the New Testament? Well, it depends on where in the New Testament it happens, right? This is a messianic prophecy that was given before the Lord's birth. And in calling the Messiah the day spring from on high, that's a reference to what we sometimes call the Song of Zechariah. Um, in Latin, we call it the Benedictus. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Luke 1, beginning at verse 68. That's where we're going to be hanging out a bit for today. Um, the Song of Zechariah, Luke 1, beginning at verse 68. But before we get into the passage itself, um, please bear with me. I'm going to refresh your memory as to the story so far in the gospel according to St. Luke. Now, you'll recall that he begins the gospel with a dedication to Theophilus, the, the one who loves God. Um, but after that, it tells the story of the priest, Zechariah, ministering in the temple and offering incense. And while he's doing this, the angel Gabriel appears and tells him that he's going to have a son named John who will be the forerunner of the Messiah. Now, you'll remember that Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, they're aged and Elizabeth is barren. Thus, Zechariah doesn't believe the angel. Well, what happens? He's, for his unbelief, Zechariah is struck mute and probably deaf as well. 
In his uh, definitive book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, Alfred Edersheim, who was a 19th century Anglican priest, but he had converted from uh, Orthodox Judaism, he says that this probably would have occurred in October and um, I presume around the time of Sukkot. Well, soon Elizabeth conceives, and six months later, an angel then appears to Mary, and she conceives the Lord Jesus, likely around the time of Passover. That's very key, by the way, that the conception of Mary happens around the time of Passover, because what else happens around the time of Passover 30-some years later? The death of the Messiah, that's right. Um, that's how we calculate nine months plus then gets to Christmas. Don't believe them when they say we were adapting Roman paganism. The Romans did it to, uh, to try to get the Christians back. Um, anyway, and the winter solstice is many days before that. So <laughs> um, I think they knew how to count the solstice back then. Um, anyway, so uh, Mary, Mary conceives right around the time of the Passover. And shortly thereafter, Mary then goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And if you remember the text, the babies recognize each other while they're still in the womb. John isn't even born yet, and he shows faith in the Messiah. That's an amazing part of the story. Both Elizabeth and Mary spontaneously burst into song. Mary's song, we call it in Latin, the Magnificat. That is still sung or recited every day in my own tradition, as, as has been the custom since about the fourth century. And Mary then stays with Elizabeth until Elizabeth gets, gives birth. Notice how this story is reminiscent of all those miraculous births in the Tanakh. Each of the patriarchs' wives were barren. Samuel's mother, Hannah, was barren. Um, her song is very similar to the Magnificat. Elizabeth was barren, yet God opened their wombs so that his plan of salvation would go forward. And each of those miraculous conceptions and birth looks forward to the most miraculous conception of all when a virgin would conceive and bear God's own son. Already we see messianic hopes being fulfilled and Yeshua hasn't even been born yet. Now we get to our story from, from Luke today. Elizabeth and Zechariah bring their son to the temple to be circumcised and to be named on the eighth day, which is, of course, what God commanded Abraham, and it's been the Jewish custom ever since. Well, the officiating priest, he wanted to call the child Zechariah after Zechariah. But Elizabeth says, no, he needs to be named John, because that's what the angel had said. Well, they're so then communicating through writing tablets, because remember, Zechariah is deaf and, and mute at this point. Um, they asked Zechariah for clarification, and he affirms that the child will be called John. With that affirmation, Zechariah's tongue is loosed, and he also breaks forth into song. And that's another canticle, another song that we Anglicans traditionally sing every day. This brings us to Luke 1.68. So here's our text. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up a mighty salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our forefathers and to remember his holy covenant, to perform the oath which he sware to our forefather Abraham that he would give us, that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest. 
He's talking to John here. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people for the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. As Edersheim writes, Zechariah's last words had been those of unbelief. His first words were those of praise. His last words had been a question of doubt. His first were a hymn of assurance. And Zechariah rightly knows here that the long period of Israel's waiting was drawing to a close. God would return to his temple. He would return to his people. With the birth of the Messiah's forerunner, the Messiah himself was drawing nigh. And in short, that long spiritual exile was finally coming to an end. And, and when we look at this hymn, and if you look at your, your, your liturgy in the Siddur, his hymn is profoundly Jewish in character. It's filled with those allusions to Old Testament prophecy, and it even mirrors the typical forms of Hebrew liturgy. Edersheim writes this. He says, It is remarkable, and yet almost natural, that this hymn of the priest closely follows and, if the expression be allowable, spiritualizes a great part of the most ancient Jewish prayer, the so-called 18 benedictions. Rather, perhaps, that it transforms the expectancy of that prayer into praise of its realization. How many of y'all are familiar with the Amidah, the Shimon Esrei, the 18 benedictions? Okay, a few of you. It's kind of the core of the daily, um, the daily liturgy in, in, in the, in the, um, in the Siddur, in the, in the Jewish liturgy. And we're pretty sure that the Shemonoi Esrei, the Amidah, those 18 benedictions, that they have their origins in the prayers that were said by the priests and the people when they were performing those temple rites of incense during the second temple period. And in particular, Zechariah seems to be alluding to the 15th of those prayers. Um, in, in, in my art scroll edition of the Siddur I have in my library, the prayer is subtitled the Davidic reign. And this is what it says. The offspring, literally in the Hebrew, it's the branch. The branch of your servant David may you speedily cause to flourish and enhance his pride through your salvation. For we hope for your salvation all day long. Blessed are you, Hashem, who causes the pride of salvation to flourish. So then with the birth and the naming of the Messiah's forerunner, we know that the branch of David, the day spring from on high, was beginning to flourish. Now, Edersheim notes here that his opinion is a minority among scholars of his day, but he proposes that there's probably a linguistic connection between whatever Aramaic word becomes dayspring in the Greek and the Hebrew word for branch in the Amidah. Israel's been praying in hope for God's salvation. Zechariah says in his hymn that God has indeed raised up that mighty salvation in the house of David. God had promised by the mouth of the prophets to save Israel from her enemies, to deliver Israel from those who hate her. Well, as you all know, Jesus' very name, Yeshua, comes from the Hebrew word for salvation, for deliverance, for rescue. All of those things go together, right? And though at this part of the story, Yeshua was still in his mother's womb, the salvation from God had already taken human flesh. Through him, God would indeed perform the oath that he swore to the patriarchs. God had indeed remembered his holy covenant. And with the Messiah also comes the remission of sins. 
God's salvation is not merely temporal, it's also eternal. That's something that a lot of the folks in the Tanakh didn't quite understand. They didn't quite have the full picture of that yet. The dominion of Israel by Rome, Babylon, Assyria, or even Egypt was not the biggest problem. The biggest problem was the dominion of all humanity by sin. But the light of the world shines in the darkness. He dispels the shadow of death. And by the incarnation, passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, he guides our feet into the way of peace. The birth, circumcision, and naming of John the forerunner was a witness to these truths. And that witness is what Advent's all about. I didn't realize it when I was planning this, but um, this passage from Luke was actually assigned in, in, uh, in, in, in our prayer book for this morning's readings for, for Christmas Eve. Um, yeah, I was listening to it on the way here because I woke up too late to actually do my own, <laughs> my own liturgical prayers, uh, uh, you know, as I, as, I, as I confess before you all. So remember we said at the beginning here, though, that Advent is not just about remembering the events and anticipation of Yeshua's first coming, and it's, it's not only about that any more than Passover is merely a remembrance of the Exodus. What do you all say every Passover? We were there, right? There's something bigger going on. We are called to use the remembrance as a reminder that the Lord will come again. As glorious as that first Advent was, we anticipate yet a second and more glorious Advent. In the Lord's incarnation, we have the first fruits of redemption. At his return, we're going to have its consummation. He will come again in glory to judge both the quick and the dead, and Advent reminds us of that as well. This reminder calls us then to be joined to the Messiah first and foremost. We are called to put our trust in him. We are called to be born again in him, as is signified by our baptism. And then we're called to live lives marked by watchfulness, marked by preparation. We are to trim our lamps, spiritually speaking. We're to grow in holiness by the aid of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We all know that. But what's the next part? Let your moderation be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. So we have a bounden duty to follow Christ, to worship him every week in the community of faith, to work and pray and give for the spread of his kingdom. And we are to remember that there are many who do not know that the Messiah has come. And among that number are many who pray daily for his coming. So we have a duty to share this light with those who are still in darkness, even as we shine his light into the dark places of our own souls. And indeed, that's what the lights of Advent and Christmas are supposed to remind us about. Now, I'm going to leave you today with a prayer called a collect in, in our own tradition. And each week of the year, basically the collect um, collects up the prayers for that week. So we change out the collect every week. 
Um, a lot of the other liturgy stays the same. We call that the ordinary prayers, but this is the proper prayers, the stuff that changes every week. And the collect is the one that collects up all the prayers of God's people for that week and kind of gives a theme for that week that we're supposed to be thinking about. So this particular collect was assigned for the first week of Advent, but it's special in that we're supposed to be praying it in addition to the other collects for the, for the next weeks every day in Advent. So this is not just Advent, the week for the Advent one's prayer, it's for the whole season. And so um, this prayer, I think, sums up everything that we've been talking about today. So let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which thy son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. Through him who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost, now and ever. Amen.